At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The final sprint to election day is here. We are going to knock on doors and we are going to raise our voices and we're going to prove the naysayers wrong. Campaign buses are rolling down Georgia's freeways. Candidates are trying to ride any momentum from their debates. Early voting is underway and record numbers of people are turning out. Tell your friends don't wait until November 8th. That's too late. It might rain on November 8th. Tell them it's early voting. It's time to show up right now. And celebrities are flying in to hit the campaign trail. I hate to quote my own show, but history does have its eyes on you. (laughs) What to expect as the clock ticks down to election day. And later, we'll bring in our colleague WABE housing reporter Stephanie Stokes. I'm Sam Greenglass, politics reporter at WABE in Atlanta. I'm Emma Hurt, politics reporter at Axios. I'm Susanna Capaluto, WABE politics editor. And I'm Raul Bally, also a politics reporter at WABE. And this is Georgia Votes 2022, a campaign podcast all about the midterms from WABE. I vote because it's a privilege. I vote because I want to make an impact. I vote because I want leaders who care about Voting is the gift of freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice. The candidates are out in last-ditch efforts to rally voters as early voting already underway in Georgia. You've been at these stops. What's the vibe? Well, I've been with the Democrats this week, uh, starting with Warnock. And, you know, I've heard a lot of stump speeches from Senator Warnock over the course of this campaign. I could probably recite them back to you at this point. Uh, But I went to a rally at Georgia State this week, and it was a little different. It was really tailored to college students. Uh, Just listen to a little bit of him talking about student debt relief. And I looked the president in his eye and I said, Mr. President, I need you to live up to your campaign promise. We need you to do student debt relief. And by the way, the amount you're talking about doing isn't enough. I need you to do more. I also spent half a day with Stacey Abrams and most of the Democratic ticket in Gwinnett County. Uh, It's the first time I'd seen the Abrams campaign bus out on the trail. And I asked her about a New York Times poll that found more independent women are leaning toward Republicans than Democrats compared to just a month ago, uh, in part because abortion is registering as a bit less of a salient issue compared to inflation and the economy in this poll. And I asked Abrams about that. Look at who is voting right now. The number of absentee ballots requested by women, 60%. That's a massive increase. But what we also know is that this is not as reductive as people like to make it into. This is not a cultural issue. This is an economic issue. This is a healthcare issue. This is a life-changing issue. And so I reject the premise. And of course, now is the time when celebrity surrogates are starting to show up in Georgia. I went to an event with Abrams and Lin-Manuel Miranda, who you heard at the top of the show. Uh, 
These were events focused on getting out the Latino vote, which is now 4% of Georgia's electorate. And I asked Miranda about Republican efforts to make inroads with these Latino voters. Hi, Republicans. Welcome. Nice to see you. Um, we, we've been here the whole time, and um, it's obvious we're not a monolith. I'd have to say the most interesting rally I went to was last Saturday in Savannah. It was for Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker. It was the morning after his debate against Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock, and there was a lot of energy in the crowd. You know, the big sense I got from talking to folks was, you know, that Herschel Walker had met or surpassed the expectation. Now, those expectations may have been set low, but they were pretty happy about it. Here's kind of a sampling. First of all, if you didn't watch the debate, watch it, um, because I think that he answers all of those questions that, um, that, that people who may be uncertain have about him. I started giving thumbs up to the people on my left and right about halfway through the debate. I'm like, hey, he's got this, because frankly, we were worried about it. The energy in the room was amazing. It was like everyone got reinvigorated to step up and make sure that Herschel makes it to the end. So I wanted to let you know who you heard there. You heard from Christine Pruitt of Savannah, who is a Walker supporter. Gannon Burton, who is from Mississippi, he got to sit in the debate hall as a guest of the Walker campaign. And a man who identified himself as Protocol from Savannah, he was talking about the watch party he was at. As for the other major race here in Georgia, you have to say that Governor Kemp campaign, you know, has also kind of hit the road running. There's such a big focus on getting the vote out now. I, you rarely ever hear the date November 8th mentioned. You know, up until October 17th when early voting started, that's the date you kept hearing. And every candidate, every rally, everywhere I'm going, they're saying, vote now, vote now, vote today. And talking about voting, yes, early voting has started. What have we learned as hundreds of thousands of people have started heading to the polls this week? What we're seeing is total turnout is certainly higher at this point than it was in 2018, our last midterm election. However, we also have many more eligible voters in Georgia than we did then, about 1.6 million more. So it's not that surprising from that lens. Um, the other thing that we know about early voting, I would say, is that all campaigns on both sides of the aisle have gotten much more uh, deliberate about encouraging their voters to vote early. There was a massive rise in absentee voting in the pandemic two years ago. We know that SB 202 has changed, you know, the access to drop boxes and has limited the time frame in which you're able to request an absentee ballot. And so I think campaigns have been pushing people more towards early voting than before. And, and we're seeing evidence of that. And, and what we're seeing, I mean, this is very early days, but we are seeing, according to georgiavotes.com, Brian Anderson, who crunches these numbers, 34% of those that have voted already are black. And that's a really important number for Democrats in particular as they're looking, they're looking for signs about what kind of electorate we might have at the end of the day. Now, I do just want to add, like, even though Republicans have gotten, I would say, more aggressive about encouraging early voting, we do still know that there will be a lot of Republicans who vote only on Election Day. And, you know, regarding those numbers, I'd like to bring up some interesting voter turnout predictions. Um, I spoke with Dr. Charles Bullock, political scientist at UGA, who's written many books on Georgia politics. And he said that Democrats need to look for the 29-29 model, he calls it. And it means that if Democrats get 29 percent of the white vote in Georgia, 
And the overall voter turnout for black voters is 29%. Then Democrats, he says, could have a chance to win statewide. But of course, there are a lot of other factors at play here. Um, Like Emma said, Republicans are more likely to vote on election day. But it proves, however, what we've often said. This election may not be won on the issues, but on which party gets their people to the polls. You know, I just want to take a moment to note a discussion that's going on about turnout and access to the ballot box. Republicans have said record turnout proves that Democrats' claims about voter suppression are without merit. And Democrats, like Abrams, say that just because turnout is high doesn't mean widespread voter suppression doesn't exist. I think the answer is probably not either or. For example, one thing I'm watching is how people vote. Uh, Going back to the primary, I've heard from lots of voters who told me they used to vote absentee, but because they're worried about running afoul of the new rules, they're going to vote in person. We also know that during the primary, uh, absentee ballot rejection rates were higher under SB202 than they were during the last election at a time that, yes, turnout is high. So I think that this story is a bit more nuanced than talking points one way or the other. All right, let's talk about debates and, more importantly, the fallout from those debates. Yeah, so since the Friday um, debate between Walker and Warnock, we did have an empty podium Senate debate that I actually asked some of the questions on where we had Senator Warnock and the Libertarian candidate Chase Oliver. And we also had the first of what's likely to just be two gubernatorial debates between Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams. And I would say both... Um, you know, we can get into more of the details, but the the high level for both of those was that they were largely about policy and content. Um, we asked about 40 minutes of questions of them. And then in the gubernatorial debate, Kemp and Abrams, you know, this is their second time facing off. Four years ago, they did the same. And I think what was really clear from their debate was how different their approaches to governing is. They both know state government really well. They know the state budget really well, and they have really different perspectives on how to do it. And I think in part because these candidates have been in the public eye for so long, Abrams and Kemp, you know, a lot of the drama in their in their past has already been dredged up. And so really what you're left with in a debate is policy differences, whereas Warnock and Walker, as we know, you know, these are two candidates who are newer to the scene. And, and so we have a lot more of the sort of personal life drama, the scandals that, that we've talked about and will continue to talk about. So the one thing I really want to talk about from the debates is the issue of abortion, especially how it's playing out on the Republican side. And let me start with Governor Kemp. You know, on the campaign trail, uh, you know, his mentions of Georgia's new six-week abortion ban sound like this. As the parents of three daughters, as a family of faith, and as a small business owner for over 35 years, Marty and I will continue to work hard every day for hardworking Georgians and future generations because we believe we need to protect life at many stages. And a couple of times on the campaign trail, I would ask the governor about, you know, what additional restrictions he would put on abortion. And and his answers were, were kind of two things. One of them was voters are not talking to me about f- future restrictions. And then the other thing is he just restate his personal position and then generally shift back to the issues of the economy. Then on Monday night, Governor Kemp got 
this question in the Atlanta Press Club debate. Governor, in recent weeks, two recordings have surfaced in which you left the door open, or you appeared to leave the door open, to questions about whether you'd push to ban emergency contraceptives and whether you'd back a statewide ban on the destruction of embryos. Can you tell us right now whether you'd push for these measures or any other additional restrictions on abortion now that the 2019 law is in effect? No, I would not. I mean, look, we were at many campaign events, People come up, secret recordings, couldn't completely understand the conversation that's going on, but no, that's not my desire to do that. Georgians should know that my desire is to continue to help them fight through 40-year high inflation. So now to Herschel Walker, where things seem to be a little more muddled, or, or as Sam says, things are a little more mushy. Uh, let's start with last Friday's debate in Savannah. Debate co-moderator Buck Lanford had this question. You've been vocally pro-life, supporting a ban on abortions without exceptions. Would you support a complete ban on a national level? Well, first of all, seconds. see, that's not true either. I say I support uh, the heartbeat bill, and I say I support the Georgia heartbeat bill because that's the bill of the people from Governor Kemp. And I said that has exceptions in it. I said, I'm a Christian, but I'm also representing the people of Georgia. Now, let me take a quick moment to explain Georgia's new six-week abortion ban, which does have exceptions for rape and incest, but there has to be a police report filed for it, and there's an exception for health of the mother. Now, NBC's Christian Welker spoke to Walker after the debate. This is what she asked him. People who are watching and who may have concerns that you, your language might shift again. My language didn't shift. No, my language never shift. I say I'm for life. I'm always for life. You did initially say No, I say I'm for life. I say I'm for life. See, I say I'm for life. But I also said I'm for what the people want. I represent the people of Georgia. And I said, that, and I don't know why we want to argue about that. When I asked him about abortion back in May during the primary, right before the Roe v. Wade decision ended up being overturned, I very specifically asked him a, a policy question. Would he support a more total ban? And take a listen to what he said. Several other candidates in this race have called for a more stringent abortion ban than the roughly six weeks law that was passed by the legislature here a few years ago. Um, would you support a more total ban on abortion with fewer exceptions? Uh, there's no there's no exception in my mind. Like I said, I believe in life. You never know what a child is going to become. And you know, I've, I've seen some people that, that have uh, they've had some tough times. But I always said, no matter what, tough times make tough people. So and no I do it. No for... exception. I believe in life. Okay, that's all. Thank Let's you, guys. Do one more. We'll okay. do one more. And I think what you're seeing top line here is Republicans trying to rectify stances they took during the primary to stances that they need to have now to compete for more independent-minded voters in a general election. And you hear candidates talking about abortion in a way on the Republican side that voters can read whatever they want into it. I'd just like to point out that next week the state trial on Georgia's abortion law will start. We probably won't have an, a ruling before Election Day, but it will bring up abortion again right before Election Day. Raul, you also noticed the anti-LGBTQ rhetoric that cropped up on the debate stage and is even showing up in TV ads now. So let me start with how that rhetoric sounds on the campaign trail. Here's Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene at her Atlanta Press Club debate, followed by Herschel Walker during his post-debate rally in Savannah. The Democrat Party is the party of child abuse. It's the party that represents grooming children and sexualizing them in school. The truth is, you said you were going to Washington to represent us. You said you were going to speak for the women. 
You put men in women's sports. And so then there was this moment in the second U.S. Senate debate that stood out to me, involved libertarian Chase Oliver and a question that was asked by Emma. Stop demonizing LGBTQ people. You know, I hear all day long from folks like Herschel Walker and about how terrible LGBTQ people are, about how they're tearing, destroying our children. Well, the fact is, is I was a gay child one time, and I was thankful that I had supportive teachers and supportive people in my life that could help me as I was growing up. And I don't want to do away with that. Chase Oliver is the first openly gay LGBTQ Senate candidate in Georgia history. And um, I asked him what federal protections he thought needed to pass at Congress. And he said he supports the Equality Act to codify same-sex marriage. But he went on um, from there to go on a bit of a rant about Republicans. If you want to see any of the 17 televised debates that happened over the past week, we have them all at wabe.org slash debates. That includes debates that Emma, Sam, and Raul appeared in. Let's take a break. This is Georgia Votes 2022 from WABE. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Welcome back to Georgia Votes 2022. Today with Raul, Sam, and Emma. During the Savannah debate, Herschel Walker brought up an apartment building in Atlanta that was once owned in part by a nonprofit foundation of Reverend Warnock's church, Ebenezer Baptist Church. And he said Warnock was responsible for evictions there. Warnock said no one was kicked out of their housing. Then Walker held a press conference in front of those apartments. And to figure out what may be happening here, we thought we would bring in our housing reporter, Stephanie Stokes. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, y'all. Hey, so what's happening here? Yeah, it's an interesting turn in this campaign. Yeah, I spent some time looking into this. There's been some, you know, pretty solid reporting about this as well in the last couple of days. This issue involves this apartment complex in Atlanta called Columbia Tower at MLK Village. And, you know, Ebenezer Building Foundation used to own this property. That's the nonprofit you just mentioned. And, you know, a quick note, Ebenezer uh, Baptist Church has actually been involved in housing since Dr. King was alive. I remember finding this newspaper clipping of him holding a press conference about this affordable housing initiative. So anyway, so that's not new for the church. But in the mid-2000s, the Ebenezer Building Foundation passed this property off to a new entity called a limited partnership sort of like an LLC, and it was called MLK Village Tower, and that had ties to MLK Village Corporation, you know, a bunch of different company names, which is all totally common in real estate. And the officers in this new corporation are very similar to the officers in the nonprofit that is associated with Ebenezer Baptist Church, and they share an address, 
And so that's where a lot of this reporting from conservative media outlets is focusing on. So this entity, though, it just owns the property. The property management is actually another company called Columbia Residential. Again, like real estate, lots of different companies involved and, you know, even just one property. So Columbia Residential, I'm very familiar with this company. It provides management for a lot of the affordable housing properties in the city. It works a lot with the Atlanta Housing Authority. And yeah, I looked up the management for this property and eviction records. And I did find that Columbia Residential has filed about 40 eviction lawsuits at this property since 2017. These are just filings. They don't necessarily mean people were forced out. And a lot of these filings were for very small amounts of money. That's where a lot of the attacks are coming from. This property has subsidized rent, meaning, you know, people are paying rent based on their income. And so some people are only paying like $150 a month. And, you know, when you're three months behind on rent, that still might not add up to a lot. It might only be like $500. Yeah, so those those are the facts. So Stephanie, is it common for there to be eviction filings even in affordable housing complexes? Yeah, totally. Yeah, Georgia is a state where evictions are super easy. Landlords can file an eviction, you know, the day after tenants are supposed to pay their rent. And I will say that 40 eviction filings over five years is actually a really small amount for a landlord in Georgia, um, especially at an apartment complex. I've seen some apartment complexes file 40 eviction lawsuits in a single day. You know, that's not super unusual here. You know, I asked Senator Warnock to respond to this on the debate stage because, as we know, the attacks from Republicans have been coming hot and heavy on it. Um, And this is what he said. This is one more example of Herschel Walker and his allies lying. First of all, there were no evictions, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that. And my church has no direct involvement in the day-to-day operations of that apartment building. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that. What you're dealing with right now is a desperate candidate who's not here tonight, and he's resorted to trying to sully the name of Dr. King's church. Stephanie, what do you make of that response? Yeah, I would I would say that it's probably true that even if the church, uh, you know, through one entity passed on to another, has, you know, has ties to the property as owner, it probably is not involved with, you know, it has a management company running the property and that management company is not, you know, asking for permission probably for every eviction filing. Yeah, I think the other thing that I saw that conservative media outlets were trying to call for investigations into was this idea that the church was trying to hide its involvement with the property, you know, using this other entity. And I think that that's just so common in the real estate market that it seems like there's not an acknowledgement of that. I think in the end, this is becoming more of like a moral issue rather than a legal issue. You know, is it right for a property to evict tenants for so little money? I actually think those kinds of moral conversations are fine to have as a housing reporter, you know, like these, this is how the system works in Georgia. And yeah, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Stephanie, when we're talking about a nonprofit entity running a housing complex for low income people, can they justify evictions ever when their mission as a nonprofit is ostensibly to get people housing rather than turn a profit? 
So in this case, you know, it's just a little confusing because this Ebenezer Building Foundation is a nonprofit, but this company that was created to own the property in the mid-2000s is actually not a nonprofit. I'm not sure about Columbia Residential, to be honest, off the top of my head. I will just say that I don't see a a big difference between the way nonprofits run properties and the way for-profits run properties necessarily. You know, I did this like super long story and I followed tenants at this property in South Atlanta called Forest Cove for a year. And that property was owned by a nonprofit for years. And that nonprofit has been the entity that is like alleged to really run it into the ground. That That is the nonprofit that really created this horrible situation for tenants there. So yeah, I don't really see much of a difference. So in terms of your question of, you know, whether or not evictions can be necessary, I think, you know, landlords will always say like, they're tight margins, and that they have their own bills to pay maintenance, etc. So I think landlords will always say that they only do evictions when they are necessary. And then one other thing I wanted to ask you about Warnock's response that we just heard, it seems like he's making a distinction between eviction filings and people actually being removed from their housing. Should we care about that distinction or is it all one and the same? Yeah, I think that it is an important distinction and it gets confusing. Certainly like someone getting kicked out of their home is more extreme than, you know, eviction filings. There are thousands of them every month in Fulton County. The actual number of people getting kicked out is smaller. So I, I think it's it's certainly uh, helpful to distinguish between the two. But um, eviction filings also can be harmful. They show up on tenants' records for years and makes it really hard for them to get housing afterward. You know, I do think, though, the bottom line here, if we look back from the political lens, is that it's a very complicated situation, as Stephanie has so expertly explained to us. But that's a very difficult message to try to counter with. As we've seen Senator Warnock um, at times seem to dodge questions about this because it's a complicated situation. But at the end of the day, for a voter who's only going to pay attention to this for a minute or two, it seems to have been difficult for the Warnock campaign to try to counter the near constant attacks from the Walker campaign about this as the Walker campaign is trying to change the narrative, to try to go on the offensive, whereas we know they've been on defense for a few weeks here. Now, to be clear, I am not trying to equate these two stories, but at the core of the controversy about Walker allegedly paying for an ex-girlfriend's abortion is the hypocrisy, given his stance as a candidate on abortion. And here you see the Walker campaign trying to make a story stick to Warnock that also gets at the same theme of presenting one way as a candidate, i.e. calling for affordable housing and criticizing pandemic evictions, and how you are outside of the spotlight. And just to make clear again, I'm not saying these two stories are the same thing, especially given what we've just heard from Stephanie's reporting. But I do think it's worth trying to understand how the campaigns are trying to spin these two stories as we get closer to Election Day. Yeah, absolutely. I just think that this is, you know, a reflection of how housing works in Georgia. It's really not an anomaly in any way. It's extremely unsurprising to me that an affordable housing property in Atlanta has filed evictions against its tenants, even for small amounts of money. At this point, I would like to also point to Stephanie's excellent podcast the last year at Forest Cove. If you haven't checked it out yet, do it. It's in your favorite podcast feed. And thank you, Stephanie, so much for all your insights here. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, I want to wrap up by thanking everyone who came out to the Buckhead Theater for the taping of the NPR Politics podcast. I I was really honored 
to be on stage with an amazing group of journalists from NPR and Georgia Public Broadcasting. Again, thanks to everybody who came out. And that's it for this edition of Georgia Votes 2022. You can always write us at georgiavotes at wabe.org. Our producer is Kevin Rinker. And guess what? Georgia Votes 2022 will be live on November 2nd at the Woodruff Library on the Atlanta University campus. Starts at 6 p.m. And you can find out more at wabe.org slash events. And make sure to check out our sister politics podcast, Political Breakfast. I'm Susanna Capaluto. See you next week.